uh, just encourage you to continue to pray for uh, Joseph as he's, uh, you know, making progress, but slowly. And for Becky, of course. And, uh, and then um, for Cheryl Lacey, who had surgery and uh, encountered some complications and had some setbacks and is in, um, I think, is still in a, a rehab facility. And so uh, we're delighted to have Donna Beattie come and uh, help us out today and uh, take Cheryl's place. So hope you feel welcome, Donna. <clears throat> All right, so gospel music and old hymns, right? Um, one, of the, uh, one of the high callings that God has put on us as Christians is to be able to maintain unity in the face of diversity. It's a really high calling, and it's not easy because we're all selfish. And that's really the bottom line because we all are like those people in that little video who want church to all revolve around me. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't work that way. And so last week, you remember in uh, Romans chapter 14, we've been studying in the book of Romans. We came to Romans chapter 14, and uh, we saw this really high calling on the life of every true Christian to maintain a unity that's actually created by the Spirit of God, and our job is to maintain it uh, in the face of diversity. And we saw last week that uh, there are such things in the Christian community as disputable issues. Uh, there are things that it's okay to be on opposite sides of. Not everything is disputable, but there are some things that are disputable issues. In fact, I would encourage you, if you missed last week, to pick up a CD. In fact, I'll give a free one to you this week uh, because it's the basis of kind of how we get along together uh, in the same church. And so... Uh, the point of uh, Romans chapter 14 is that our unity is based on our love for one another, not on uniformity. Unity isn't about trying to get somebody to see everything my way and then we can get along. Unity is about, you know, I recognize that God loves you and that you're a brother or a sister in Christ. And even though we have different opinions on different things, uh, we still can have the kind of unity that glorifies God, uh, the kind of unity that we all long for in a family. And it just... Uh, seems to me, you know, in verse 1, it says this, accept the person whose faith is weak. Accept the person whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable issues. Without passing judgment. You know, I, I often think that the person who is very dogmatic and has opinions about everything is the strong believer. You ever encounter people like that? They have an opinion about everything and they're happy to tell you. And they're very dogmatic about a lot of things, everything. And it's more their personality than the reality. And here in this passage, it says, you know, that's the person with the weak faith. Because when we get to chapter 15 and in verse 1, it talks about people with strong faith. And look what it says. We who are strong have to bear with the failings of the dogmatic person who has a high opinion about everything and doesn't see anything as a disputable issue. The person with strong faith, it says, bears with the failings of the weak and doesn't just please themselves. Strong faith is the opposite of selfishness. Strong faith says, you're more important than me. Strong faith says, you're a brother or sister in Christ. You are more important. I'm going to consider you more important than myself. Because that's what Jesus Christ did when he came from heaven emptied himself, humbled himself, went to the cross. He basically was saying, you are more important than me. I don't want to go to the cross. 
Please, Father, if there's some other way, take this cup from me. But there was no other way. And so Jesus goes to the cross because he considers you more important than himself. And then he invites us to come and to follow in his footsteps. And so the strong person doesn't just, the person who's strong in faith doesn't just please themselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good and build him up. For even Christ didn't please himself, but it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And so strong faith, weak faith. Now, most Christians want to, you know, if I ask you, do you have strong faith or weak faith? Not everybody stands up and says, oh, I have weak faith. Most of us want to think that our faith is strong. You know, when we sang about uh, anticipating the Lord coming and being in heaven and, and going to be with him and, and, and meeting him in the air and so forth, it's like, wow, that's, I can't wait for that day. What a great day that's going to be. And it is our hope. And, uh, yeah, it's easy to just slip back, you know, and, and to fall into this whole idea that uh, this life and, and what's going on now is more important than God and uh, what's going on for all of eternity. And so... There are some indisputable issues. There are some non-negotiable absolutes, and we should be prepared to die for those things. We should know what they are. What would you give your life for before you would compromise on those indisputable issues? Uh, but not everything is an indisputable issue. There are disputable issues, and we can be fully convinced without passing judgment on the next person. Uh, and I think one of the areas, isn't it sad that Margie mentioned, you know, <clears throat> that this issue about uh, music in particular and worship has, has gotten to be tagged the worship wars. How would you just, I mean, how would you come before God and have worship be a, a war? Because everybody's so selfish and we all want our own kind of music. And, uh, you know, I've said before that, you know, we can go home, we can listen to whatever kind of music we want. It's available 24-7. But when we come together and have corporate worship, we need to be mindful of the next person. And we need to consider that person perhaps more important than ourselves. And when we do that, the unity that we're called to can be maintained. Now, furthermore, I think we all have areas where our faith should be stronger. We all have areas in our life where our faith should have more influence than it does. Would you agree? So while we're called to limit our freedom in order to be compassionate to the next person... You need to know that somebody else is limiting their freedom in order to live with you. Somebody else is holding back on what they think and keeping it to themselves because they see the weak spots in your faith that you perhaps don't see. And they're, you know, stretching themselves and foregoing their freedoms in order to embrace you. Just like God is calling us to do for the next person. And so uh, when we refuse to accept or to genuinely love a believer whose faith is weak, I say we compete with God. We start to judge them. We try to control them. You know, uh, we try to uh, use them to get praise for ourselves and talk about ourselves as being, you know, more mature than them or stronger than them and all those kinds of things. And we begin to compete rather than cooperate with God. And so this morning, when we get back into Romans chapter 14, uh, Paul takes these thoughts a little bit further. <clears throat> and I want to suggest to you that the second part of Romans chapter 14 is really about how to be better at maintaining the unity that the Spirit of God creates. Make every effort to maintain the unity that, of the Spirit of God in the bond of peace, uh, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. And so I want to suggest that uh, in, in here, uh, in the second part of Romans chapter 14, 
Uh, the question is, you know, how do we live in unity? Whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a family, whether it's in a church, how do we live with more unity in the face of the diversity of the uniqueness of every person? Every person's different, right? And I'd be the first to tell you this isn't easy. Because you know what? Most people gravitate to people like themselves. And when somebody's different, guess what? It takes effort to love that person. You know, a few years back, there was um, church growth movement, and uh, people were writing books on how to grow churches. And one of the main issues was, if you really want to grow a church, don't have diversity in the church. Find a homogeneous unit of people and target that group of people. And because people like to be with people who are like themselves. And they don't like to be challenged by being next to somebody who's different. And, uh, and, and it was kind of one of those church growth principles that, you know, I didn't think was biblical. Uh, I just didn't see that in Jesus' ministry. And uh, I didn't see it as the church was evolving, you know, in, in, uh, in New Testament times and so on. So I want to suggest three uh, issues that Paul brings up here, uh, three ways in which we can be better at um, promoting and maintaining the unity that the Spirit of God creates. So number one, in verse 13, we read these words. This is where we left off last week. Therefore, stop passing judgment on one another. Just stop it. Stop passing judgment on one another and instead make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother or sister's way. Just stop passing judgment. And so I want to suggest the first principle is you have to decide, you have to make a decision uh, that you are going to help the next person grow and mature no matter what that you exist to help the next person grow. Not to criticize them, not to judge them, not to control them, but to help them grow. Not slow them down, but help them to grow. And um, you do that by deciding, I'm no longer going to be a stumbling block or an obstacle to the next person, no matter who they are. And uh, these are two different words. They're two different things. A stumbling block as I understand the word to mean, is something that's carelessly left around that causes somebody else to trip up. Something that's done unintentionally. Uh, maybe we carelessly say something. Words slip out of our mouth. Uh, it's unintentional. Uh, maybe we make an insensitive choice, not thinking about how this is going to impact the other person. Uh, maybe, you know, we sort of flaunt our freedom in the face of somebody who's got a weaker faith who is challenged by our choices. And we just sort of carelessly cause somebody to trip up. And uh, it hurts or it confuses or it trips up uh, the next person. Maybe we're obsessed about something. Maybe we have some unresolved issue in our past and we've never really dealt with it and we've never really experienced forgiveness and we've never gotten rid of it. And every time, you know, some little thing comes up, it just triggers this obsessive response and it sends our fellow Christians like, what's wrong with you? It's unintentional, but it's there and it becomes like a stumbling block to the next person. On the other hand, obstacles refers to something more deliberate. An obstacle is intentional. An obstacle is, you know, like an accusation, or I'm going to bring you down, or I'm going to put you in your place, or I'm going to let you have it kind of thing. Uh, things that are designed to hurt and to wound people, accusations, judgments, flaunting our freedom in the face of, of a different believer. 
And Paul gives an example of this in these next couple of verses. He says, as one who is in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, Paul's talking about himself, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. God made everything. No food is unclean in itself. Paul says, I'm fully convinced of that for myself, right? And then he says, but if anybody regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. So if the next person has a different opinion about their diet or about what's clean and unclean and so forth, um, Paul respects that and so forth. And he says, um, verse 15, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do you not... Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. You know what Paul's saying? You should limit your freedom for the sake of the weaker brother. You should say, you know what? If this offends you, I'm not going to do it. I'm fully convinced that it's fine for me, but because I love you and because this is a hang-up for you and a problem for you, I'm not going to do it. We should limit our freedom, because that's what love is, for the sake of the next person whose faith might be weaker than ours. Stop passing judgment, stop trying to control, and so forth. How do you consider another person, the next person, more important than yourself? Well, Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, you know, that it's not about food. It doesn't really matter what you eat. It's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart that either makes or breaks your life. Mark chapter 7. The people were all hung up on food and so forth, and Jesus, you know, lays that whole thing out. It's what comes out of your heart that will either make or ruin your life. And uh, in, in, um, in the New Testament, um, I think we learned that a lot of things, food is, a, is morally neutral. Money is morally neutral. Things are morally neutral. It's what value we place on them and what priority we give them that make them either good or bad. But the things in and of themselves, food in and of itself, is morally neutral. True? Uh, all of those kinds of things. And so uh, for the weaker Christian, you know, uh, for them, I'm f fully convinced that no food is unclean. But if somebody else regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. And, and that changes then my response to them and how I react to them. Uh, in Galatians chapter uh, 5, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free. The truth sets you free. It's great to be a Christian. It's freedom. All right. You were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Don't use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature, but rather, what should I use my freedom for? This great freedom that I have in Christ, what should I use it for? To serve one another in love. I can do anything. But what should I use my freedom for? It should be to serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Right? So we have this tremendous freedom. And I think in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul elaborates a little bit on this. He's talking about food here that's been offered to idols. And for some people, you know, it was a real problem because if this food has been offered to idols, then it's tainted and I can't eat it. And for other people, they said, you know what? An idol is nothing. It's just a piece of wood. It's the value that people ascribe to it that creates the idolatry in it. So big deal. So the food's offered to a piece of wood. doesn't change the food. I'm eating. And so Paul talks to the uh, Corinthian church. Here's what he says about food sacrifice to idol. We know that uh, everybody possesses knowledge. 
Everybody knows something, Paul writes. However, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought. The dogmatic person has an opinion about everything and everything's right and wrong, everything's black and white, nothing's gray. He knows everything about everything. He does not yet know as he ought. There's something more important than knowledge. And it's very important in our culture with the explosion of technology and the knowledge that's available to people and knowledge is power and everybody thinks, is there anything more important than more knowledge? Yeah, love. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something doesn't know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. That's important. Okay? So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, Paul says, uh, we know that an idol is nothing. It's nothing at all in the world. And that there is only one God. There's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, small g, small g gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many small g gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everybody knows this. Not everybody knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that then when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat it, and we're no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Doesn't get in the way of a person being able to move forward. For if anybody with a weak conscience sees you, who has this knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what's been sacrificed to idol, and so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge? When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Why should my freedom be limited by your weak faith? Because I love you. Because it's important to you, whether it's important to me or not. Because whether I eat or don't eat isn't that big of a deal. But loving a brother is a big deal. And so the first decision that I think we're called to make in this passage in Romans chapter 14 is that we have to decide, I'm going to use my life in order to build up the next person. If you have your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks a little bit more about this, verse uh, 23. Everything's permissible, Paul says. Everything is permissible for a Christian. <laughs> All right? But not everything is beneficial. Everything's permissible. There's tremendous freedom in Christ. But not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Think of what would happen in a marriage if two people could just live by that one line. Nobody should think of their own good, but for the good of the other. Just that one line. Empowered by the Spirit of God could transform many marriages, right? So he says, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of the others. 
Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God created it all. Um, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink whatsoever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Your motive is what matters. Why are you eating this or not eating this? And is your motive for the sake of the next person? Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Paul is saying, I limit my freedom. How do you create or, or maintain unity in the face of diversity? You consider the next person more important than yourself. And you adjust your choices because you love them. Now, I didn't say this was easy. How do you maintain unity? It's why unity suffers. It's why we have worship wars. Because I like my music. And I like my food. And I like my money. And I like my freedom to make my own choices. And, and I'm an American. And I'm independent. And why should I limit my freedom for you, you weaker person? Because I love you. And so this is the first kind of... Uh, I think stake in the ground that Paul says, if you want to maintain the unity that the Spirit of God has given, you have to consider the next person more important than yourself and make a decision that you exist for their betterment, for their growth, for their encouragement, and so forth. Second, the second concrete way it seems to me to create unity in the face of diversity from Romans chapter 14 um, is, I would say, focus on kingdom values. Focus on kingdom values. You know what creates disunity when we, we always look at the surface of things? Uh, you know, it, it happens pretty regularly, right? We tend to get hung up on the externals. We look at people's clothes or people's habits or people's music or, you know, people's recreation. So we're like the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees were. Nitpicking, nitpicking, nitpicking. They miss the kingdom of God because they're nitpicking on all of these external things. And we're just like the Pharisees when we do that, and it disrupts the unity that God created. What if our focus was really gospel-centric living, and what if what's going on in our hearts was more important than what's going on in people's stomachs? What if we focused on kingdom values? And so the next couple of verses here in Romans chapter 14, um, verse 16, do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What is it all about to be in the kingdom of God? It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anybody who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. What if we focused on kingdom values, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit so that the kingdom of God could manifest itself in the midst of the kingdom of this world and draw people to the Christ of the kingdom? Uh, what if we embraced kingdom values, righteousness, peace, and joy? Uh, I want to say that when we're concerned about righteousness, which is being right with God, either with ourselves or for the next person, when we're concerned about righteousness um, and we ask ourselves the question, you know, well, how does righteousness come about? Does anybody ever get righteous because somebody else judges and nitpicks them to death? Or does righteousness come about by faith in the person of Jesus Christ? How do you get right with God? It's the gospel. You get right with God when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. 
And uh, when that happens and the Spirit of God gets inside of you, then the Spirit of God begins to press you from the inside. And you begin to have this desire for holiness, to please God, to, to live for Christ. But it comes from being right with God, from being righteous. And there's only one way we can possibly be righteous. You remember uh, in Romans chapter 3 when we were studying through Romans and Romans 3, 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law. A righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. How do you get righteousness? How do you get right with God? From somebody nitpicking at you, from trying harder, from living with a Pharisee, or from embracing Jesus Christ and and being declared righteous. And once that righteousness is yours, it has a transforming effect and power upon us. This righteousness that uh, causes us to desire uh, to find uh, a way of expressing our appreciation. It's a righteousness that um, creates in us a longing for holiness, a longing for a stronger faith. The gospel, the Bible says, Romans 1.16, is the power of God for salvation. It's the gospel. What if we lived gospel-centric lives? What if we focused on kingdom values? What if our concern was righteousness and we knew righteousness came through faith in Christ? And being focused on kingdom values, instead of uh, judging and trying to you know, sort out on these disputable issues, we were concerned about people embracing Jesus Christ. Um, if, if you want to be a believer and grow in holiness, um, do we help that by passing judgment on other people on disputable issues? Or do we help that by fostering faith? You remember in Galatians, uh, Paul dealt with this very thing in uh, Galatians chapter 3. Paul says, look, he said, I I just want to learn one thing from this church in Galatia. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Paul's like, that's not the way you're going to grow. It's not the way you're going to mature. It's not the way you're going to acquire holiness and so forth. After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain the goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you've heard? You believe the gospel. Righteousness with its focus on the person of Christ. And so once righteousness becomes a reality, can I suggest to you that when righteousness is really yours, on the basis of the gospel, on the basis of faith in Christ, peace comes next. I think peace with people is dependent on peace with God. I think being at peace with yourself is dependent on peace with God. It's dependent on righteousness. When you are right with God, you can be right with yourself. You can be right with the next person. So it's righteousness that yields then to peace. Peace with God is what's behind peace with people and unity in the face of diversity. You know, uh, peace with God is what frees me from being a people pleaser to being a people lover. Of being able to get along with the diversity. If, if God loves you and God loves me and we're different, my peace with God enables me to embrace you. Uh, gospel-centric living leads to peace in my soul. Uh, peace which only Christ can supply. Somebody said, um, you know, it's not the externals, it's the eternals when we focus on the kingdom values. And then righteousness and peace leads to joy. Joy is the mark that the presence of God really does exist in people's lives. Joy. 
Joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is the evidence, I think, of God's presence. And joy in the face of problems. Joy in the face of suffering. Joy in the face of uh, life's downturns. Joy in the face of diversity with other people. To celebrate people's uniqueness rather than to try and conform them uh, to our own ideas. Joy over the fact that Jesus is Lord over the other people so that I don't have to be. And joy, of course, is different from happiness. Remember, we talked about this a long time ago. Uh, happiness is dependent on happenings. Joy is something deeper. Joy is eternal. Joy is dependent on the presence of God in your life. Joy is dependent on the spirit of God. I'm all for happiness. I'm all for good happenings, right? I mean, happiness is great, but joy is better. Joy is eternal. It's kingdom value. And what if we as Christians were focused on kingdom values? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Think of how easy it would be to stop being judgmental and to have this unity in the face of diversity. When we live these gospel-centric lives resourced in God's righteousness, I believe that we're freed up then to love uh, other people wherever they're at and to cooperate with God. However, uh, you'll notice in uh, verse uh, 19, this takes effort. This is the problem. This takes effort. Uh, verse 19 says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. This doesn't just drop into our laps. This doesn't automatically happen. It takes effort. And uh, I think uh, perhaps the best way to think about effort, I think it means that we go first. We don't wait for the other person to come around. We don't wait for the other person to make the first move. We're like God. God always goes first. God loves first. God speaks first. God reaches out first. And God invites us by his spirit to be like him. And so we go first. We initiate. We take the initiative. We don't sit around and wait, you know. Uh, we are prompted not so much by other people's actions, but by the very spirit of God who lives within us. And often the spirit of God is prompting us to do counterintuitive things. And we always have to make that choice. But when we're focused on kingdom values, um, then we begin to make these choices uh, to listen to the Spirit of God instead of just responding to what other people say. And when we do that, we can respond to what God is saying and doing. But it takes effort. It takes time to be still in a devotional life, to hear the voice of God. It takes prayer to listen. What is it that God is leading me to do? It takes a, a pace of life that enables us, when the, when the Spirit prompts us about something, not to just respond, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, and just keep going. It takes effort. To bring about unity in the face of diversity. Uh, we can respond to what God is saying instead of just what other people. And I think this effort uh, to live a God-first life in every area of our life. What would it take to live a God-first life socially? Think of your social life and all the relationships you have with family and work and friends and neighbors and church people. and so. What if God were to be first in all of those relationships socially? What would it take to live a, a, a God-first life mentally? How would I feed my mind? How much less TV and more Bible study would I have to do in order to live a God-first life mentally so that I was feeding my mind with the stuff that God wants me to know and wants me to focus on? What would it be like to be, you know, truly living a God-first, uh, gospel-centric, God-first? What would it be like to live a God-first life uh, emotionally? What would it take? What kind of effort would it take to be able to maintain an emotional level where I was available to other people instead of taking all my emotional energy just to survive myself? 
Is there a resource someplace where the very spirit of God gets in me and these passages of scripture that we read this morning before our service started could actually be true? That anxiety could be reduced. Stress could be reduced. I could be available for the next person. Gospel centric. God first. Could God address some of my concerns to the point where I could relax and be able to focus on the next person? Unity in the face of diversity. You know, but it takes effort. You know, the Bible goes so far as to say, um, here's, you know, I mentioned that I think some people don't know Romans 14 is in the Bible. I think some people don't know that uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is in the Bible either. In 1 Corinthians 6, um, you know, uh, what happens when Christians have a dispute? And, you know, they're on either side of some issue. And in 1 Corinthians 6, the question is asked, why don't you just rather be wronged? It's like a shocking idea. Like, I could be wronged. I could be like Jesus and absorb somebody else's offenses. So he asked the question here. He says in, in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6, if any of you has a, verse 1, if any of you has a dispute with another person, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before saints? This is Matthew 18, right? You have a dispute with somebody. You first go to the person, then you find somebody in church who can maybe mediate for you. And, you know, if you can't, you tell it to the whole church. So, But Paul's like, these Christians in this church, they're taking each other to court, secular court. Don't you know that the saints are going to judge the world? And if you're going to judge the world, aren't you competent to judge these little trivial cases? Don't you understand that we're going to judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about these kinds of things, appoint some judges, men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you, Paul says. Is it possible there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not value the unity more than just my own personal satisfaction? Now, this gets pretty tough, you know. I say this takes effort. We've had situations in church where, you know, people have done work for other people and then the money wasn't there to pay. And, you know, we get all this kind of stuff going on and we got these disputes and what's going to happen here? And Paul says, you know what? If you live a God first, kingdom first life. There are situations where, why wouldn't you just rather be wronged and preserve the unity and absorb the brother's faults, the weak faith of the next person? I just think, you know, this is quite a challenge. Uh, again, a lot of times I think people don't, aren't aware that that even is an option. And um, verse 19 of Romans 14, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for food. Don't lose a brother over what you're going to eat, you know, kind of thing. And um, it's better not to eat or drink wine or do anything else that causes a brother to fall. You should limit your freedom for the sake of the next person whose faith is probably weaker than yours. I have this little poem that uh, I have. Uh, I have it in, a, in my Bible, in an older Bible. Uh, but um, it's, I just wanted to share this with you. It's called Anyway. And uh, I've often read this and just thought about it, how true this is. Uh, people are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. Okay? If you do good 
people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you'll win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. The biggest people with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest people with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs, but only follow top dogs. Fight for some underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. Give the world the best you've got, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you've got anyway. Right? It takes effort. And some of us, you know, after a while, we say, you know, it just isn't worth it. But this is worship. This is our God. This is what God has called us to, this unity in the face of diversity. Okay, and then finally, uh, real quick, the third uh, issue, it seems to me, I love this, this third uh, point here. Uh, the third way that uh, unity is created in the face of diversity is when God really is your primary relationship. This is a great thought. Um, here's what Paul says, verse 22. Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Don't gossip about it. Don't stew over it. Don't complain to your pastor about the next person. Go talk to God about it. Keep it between yourself and God. Pray. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We like to sing that old hymn. And I think, you know, what a great concept this is. If God is your primary relationship and you talk to him about these things and you have satisfaction with him, you can deal with You can preserve the unity. You don't need to change anybody and so forth. I don't know, maybe you've had this experience. A lot of times this has happened to me a lot. I'll go to God in prayer to straighten somebody else out. I'll say, God, you've got to fix this guy. And what happens? I get changed. My attitude changes. I suddenly see this guy through God's eyes. And all of a sudden, I'm transformed. Right? Has that ever happened to you in prayer? You just got a problem with somebody. You talk to the Lord about it. And what happens? You change. Because you're close. He's your primary relationship. He's your main influencer. He's number one. And, and, and it's okay to keep some things. Do you have some things that are just between you and God? You have a number of issues that, you know, you only talk to God about. That's what Paul's saying here. Whatever you believe about these things, and the, these things are those disputable issues that this whole chapter's been about. Whatever you believe about these things, just keep between yourself and God. Have God be your primary relationship. Pray. Take these things to the Lord in prayer. And then the Lord changes us. Is God your primary relationship? Just think how unity would be fostered. If we could just keep some stuff between us and God, and we'd be okay with that. Because God would understand both you and the next person, right? And uh, how blessed we are when we're confident that we're tight with God, and that we're okay with God, and that God understands, because I've had the opportunity to explain to him my posture and my position and my thoughts. And he's affirmed, you know, and I can explain why. And then he changes us, you know. And what a great freedom comes into us.
And then finally, this last verse sort of wraps things up in chapter 14. The man who has doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. What's your ambition in life? What's your goal in life? What do you want to do between now and the day you die and you meet Jesus in the air as we sang about this morning? Is it a product of your faith? Is the big goal in your life, the big ambition, the big desire that you have between now and the end of your life a product of your faith? Or have we been so sucked into the world to think that it's all about now and we've missed the eternal perspective of what's really important to God? And I would leave you with this challenge to just ask yourself, what is it that is your big ambition in life? What's your desire between now and the day you die? What, What do you want your life? Why do you get up in the morning? What do you want it to be about? And is it a product of your faith? Because I believe, therefore, this is my passion. This is my desire. This is my goal. This is my dream. This is my ambition for the rest of my life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the scriptures, and we especially appreciate uh, the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul just, uh, you know, has such great theology and then the applications to our lives. And uh, because of what Jesus did, because that righteousness comes through the cross, because the one place where God and mankind can come together is through the cross, and because Jesus was willing to set aside himself and empty himself and humble himself, And to create this unity, this reconciliation between you, Father, and us. That you then ask us that we would live the same. That we would consider the other person more important than ourselves. That we would sacrifice some of our freedom in order to accommodate a weaker person's faith. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would take this lesson to heart. And I pray that our relationship with you would really be our primary relationship. That nobody would influence us more in life than you. And that you, by your spirit and your presence in our life, uh, be focused on righteousness and peace and joy, that we would be a part of a kingdom, Father, that attracts other people to Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.